you know, the great thing about a novel, it's operatic. It's huge in scale and how much you can put in there. Um, but it also means there's, there's always a moment you could make sharper. There's always a phrase. There's always a metaphor. There's always a simile. There's always a way you can improve it. Welcome to a live edition of the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience at the wonderful independently owned Bridgeside Books in Waterbury. Stephen Kiernan spent much of his life as an award-winning journalist for the Burlington Free Press and the Boston Globe. In 2013, he made the jump from reporter to fiction writer with the publication of his debut novel, The Curiosity. He has never looked back. Kiernan has now published five critically acclaimed novels, including The Baker's Secret and Universe of Two. His latest novel is The Glass Chateau, which came out in June. His new book is a haunting tale set just after World War II in France. The story centers around an assassin for the resistance who struggles to reckon with the killings he has committed, and a traumatized nation attempts to rebuild. The challenge is captured in an attempt to repair the shattered stained-glass windows of a grand cathedral. Stephen Kiernan is a graduate of Middlebury College, Johns Hopkins University, and the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop. Stephen Kiernan, welcome to this live edition of the Vermont Conversation. I'm glad to be with you, David. Um, it's it's a, a wonderful thing to do this with people in the room, normally have these conversations just solo and you've been out touring i i want to um people have sometimes asked me uh if i write fiction and i say usually um well i have often been accused of it but no <laughs> um mm -hmm. so you are proof that inside every newspaper reporter is a novelist waiting to bust out so i want to start with your story of how you became a novelist after many years as a very distinguished newspaper reporter. Well, it, it actually happened in the opposite direction. Um, I have been writing kind of always, definitely a storyteller always. And um, somewhere around 18 or 19, I really felt pretty strongly that I wanted to be a novelist. And I lacked all of the things that you need to have to be a novelist, except maybe breath in my lungs. And But a lot of things happened along the way that I did while working toward being a novelist. Um, by the time I published my first novel, I was 53. And I'd published two nonfiction books in that time. I'd also written four other novels, The Wall of Silver, What We Could Have Had, Leaving the Country of My Birth, and Moonlight Sonata, which did not get published. They weren't good enough. And so, uh, and I can say that like, Without shame, it was my part of my education. So I think that it actually was more like, how was I able to do journalism when I was a novelist at heart? And um, and that didn't mean that I was ever tempted toward fiction. You know, I went to school, after college, I went back to school to work on writing. And while I was there, I started working for a newspaper. And there were a couple things about that. The first, first of all, it's, it's very addictive to be in print. I find. Um, and um, the second thing is that there was a readership and all of the stuff, all the fiction I've been writing, you know, in my bedroom at five o'clock in the morning, there was no audience for, you know, except maybe my, my girlfriend at the time, if she was very patient once she'd had her coffee, you know, it was really, um, there was, there were, there were people responding to what I was writing and it was a way to make a living and still be in the word business. A lot of the other people that I was in school with went off for various teaching jobs in various places, which is way more demanding than any of them realized, if you could do it well. And so they were suddenly now down to just the summer months to, to write their fiction. And um, so I was writing fiction that wasn't very good, but almost the whole time that I was working in newspapers, which was about 20 years. And where were you a newspaper <clears throat> reporter? I worked first at the Daily Iowan in Iowa City, Iowa. And I was an arts reporter and then an editorial writer. And I did an occasional breaking story, but not a lot. And I wrote the kind of famously terrible headlines. And, um, and then I worked at the Burlington Free Press for 15 years. And then I was writing for the Boston Globe Sunday Magazine for a while. Um, and I did write two nonfiction books, um, one of which 
was a healthcare book that did really well, and one was a kind of let's revive our society kind of book, and it didn't it didn't sell at all. But I still loved the work on it, and um, and the the healthcare book led to something I hadn't expect expected, which was it was about a very specific thing. It was about how we take care of people who are terminally ill. You know, we used to be everyone died fast, and we had a health system that was designed to work with that. And now most people die slowly, and the health system is gradually, very slowly, beginning to learn how you take care of people in a different way, so that they have dignity, that they're pain-free, that they get a decent breath, those sorts of things. And so I wrote about hospice and palliative care and advanced directives, and it turned out there was a great demand for me to speak about that. And so medical conferences would pay me to come talk about end-of-life care, and that's how I supported myself while I wrote what was my fifth novel, but first one that I got published. So the nonfiction book you're talking about, Last Rites, came out in 2007, which was really early in the movement to talk about end-of-life care, hospice, palliative care. How did you get onto that topic? I mean, of late, you know, Atul Gawande has a wonderful book about it, um, but a pretty good book about early. it. His book sold a lot of copies. I, I didn't exactly love it, but that's okay. He was a surgeon who became aware of mortality when his father died. It's like, well, okay, there are lots of physicians that are working round the clock with people who are terminally ill, and it's nice of you to understand that humanity is mortal. Um, so, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a topic that generally we become aware of when someone we love dies. Yes, so. that's right, that's right. But I'm just, it's just to say, like Ira Bayak, who was in Vermont for a while and was at Dartmouth Hitchcock for a long time, has written the, the Four Things That Matter Most and uh, the Things You Want to Do Before You Die. He's written enormous enormously valuable substantive books that aren't just about his dad who did die of pancreatic cancer and he took care of him, but about what it is, what's happening across the culture, which is, you know, in Vermont, about 6,500 people die every year. The numbers are a little higher um, in the COVID times and about 1,800 of them are in pain and about 1,500 of them are alone. And, and so even though we've made enormous progress since I wrote that book in 2005 to come out in 2007, we still have a lot of work to do. Vermont ranks really low nationally in the percent of people who get hospice care, and we're at the bottom in terms of how long they get it for. So we, even why, though we think... Why do you think that is? It's a really complicated question. Um, some of it is the challenge of delivering hospice care in a rural environment. But there are rural states that far surpass us. Montana crushes us. Colorado, way better. Um, and by crushing us, what does that look like? It means that um, instead of 28% of people receiving hospice care in the last six months of life, 78% do. And instead of them receiving it for four days in Vermont, they get it for 40 days in Montana, which means it's not just like pain management for your last couple of nights at home. It's actually like, let's get you home and get your symptoms under control so you can have meaningful control over the last chapter of your life. Get your affairs in order, you know, take care of whatever emotional work you do, whether it's thanks or apologies or expressions of love, and maybe attain some kind of spiritual calm. That's what happens in states that have long hospice stays. You know, it's interesting because we were very much ahead of the curve with medically assisted death. Yes. Or uh, whatever the, you know, the, the jargon is for that. Right. But you're saying we're really be way behind the curve on palliative care hospice. I know there are new numbers now that UVM Medical Center has taken over the VNA of Chittenden County and Grand Isle County. Um, but but uh, when last I knew the numbers cold, which is, I've been more involved in writing fiction, when I last knew the numbers cold, the only thing that had improved hospice care in Vermont was the arrival of Bayada which is actually a for-profit uh, hospice organization, and the VNA was not getting the same kind of improvements. Um, so we have a way to go culturally on it. And some of it may be we have community hospitals, and we have an emphasis on primary care, and we do have physician-assisted suicide. We're on this. We got this covered. When in fact, there's a piece where we have room to improve. All right. So I want to move from your work as a journalist to when did you take the plunge to really you know, make that leap of faith and decide you were going to be all in writing fiction? You know, 
anyone who's worked in, in newspapers, you know, I saw a former free press colleague here on the way in the door, God bless her. And, um, uh, the, within the organizations, within the industry, you could feel it contracting. You may have experienced this yourself. You can feel it contracting. And it's no fun to work in an industry that's shrinking. You feel like the polar bear on the piece of ice, like it's just getting smaller. And so that was happening at the same time that I really was reaching a point where I wanted to talk about an idea that couldn't be fully discussed in 800 or 1,000 words. You know, this book is about 115,000, and the Glass Chateau is. And, um, and that feels like I really pared it down to get it pretty tight, to get that whole idea in 115,000 words. And so I was yearning for that. And I was writing a lot about end-of-life care in Vermont and the beginning of the physician-assisted suicide movement and, um, and started to look at how Vermonters' last chapters of their lives are. And, um, and I was telling people about it, and, and as I was writing about it, people started to tell me stories about their loved ones, you know, and sometimes it was beautiful. And, and Grandpa died, you know, having just sipped his beer watching a Red Sox win a baseball game, like perfect for him. There was some of it was like that, but most of it, there was tons of pain that could have been managed and emotional suffering that could have been anticipated and cared for. And I began to think that it was unjust. So people were telling me these stories and I have a couple of um, friends who are novelists and the guy who was very helpful in this in particular is my great buddy, Chris Bojalian, who's, you know, one of the most successful writers in America and probably the most successful writer from Vermont ever in history. And um, most books published, most bestsellers, most copies sold. Oh, you know, enormously successful guy. And he's been very helpful to me in my career. And he said, you have these people telling you these stories. You need to do just like what you do as a newspaper and write those stories down and make a book out of it. He introduced me to an agent and I got an advance. That's how I made the jump. I got that advance. So let's move into the world of the glass chateau. We're leapfrogging over some of your other books. But this is actually your third book dealing with this same time period of World War II, post-war. Uh, you have Universe of Two, which is a love story about a math whiz building part of the atomic bomb. You have The Baker's Secret, which is set on the eve of D-Day with a young French girl in occupied Normandy, keeping herself and her community uh, alive. And now we're with the Glass Chateau, this beautiful and provocative image of picking up the pieces of a shattered life and a shattered culture. What has drawn you to that era? I love that you just expressed it that way because... Um... I really felt, uh, well, let me first say, yeah, I was really drawn in to write um, World War II literature at all when I wrote a book um, prior to the ones that you mentioned called The Hummingbird. And uh, there was in that book, it was a subplot and a small subplot, but there was a Japanese pilot who did actually drop bombs on American soil. That's that's the reality. That's historical fact. And he came back in 1972, <clears throat> excuse me, um, to apologize. And he gave a samurai sword that had been in his family for 19 generations to the people of Brookings, Oregon. It is still in the public library there. He was all about, he was a warrior who wanted to become a man of peace. And the novel was mostly about a guy who just came back from his third deployment in Iraq, also a warrior trying to become a man of peace and really struggling. And so that was the core of it. But there was his historical part. And I'd never really read much about World War II. So I thought that that the idea of community and participation in, in strengthening the fabric of community would be an interesting thing to write about. So I write, wrote um, The Baker's Secret, D-Day from the French Perspective. And as you say, this young woman who keeps her community alive at enormous risk and personal sacrifice. And then I thought, well, I've written a Pacific theater novel and I've written a European theater novel. I want to write a home front novel. And at the pace that I usually go, I would probably get it done roughly around when the 75th anniversary of Hiroshima is coming up. And so that, that embarked on uh, Universe of Two, which is about a young man who's a math whiz, and he ends up working for the Manhattan Project, not knowing what he's getting into. And then once he realizes, he's very, very morally opposed, um, and, but, but he's, the, the momentum is going. And by the way, Thousands of the people working on the Manhattan Project were morally opposed. So we know about the Oppenheimer film and how he has like, you know, 
second thoughts and so on. But there were petitions signed by thousands of people working in Tennessee, uh, at Oak Ridge, or in uh, <clears throat> or in Los Alamos. And um, so uh, I felt like there was a pretty compelling story there about so and and what this guy does after the war is um, become a builder of cathedral organs, and that's how he takes care of his conscience after the war. And, um, and then, I, then it was, you know, I was looking at what book did I think the world would want to read in 2023? And you ask that question to yourself in 2020, you say, we are going to need a healing book. I didn't even know how much we were going to need a healing book. You know, COVID was underway when I started this book, but also what was happening in the fabric of our culture, our politics, all of that. And um, why is everyone so angry? And why is, are so many people also so sad and lonely? And can we do a rebuilding story? So that's, so this is actually, this book begins a month after the war has ended. And it's about these people trying to, to rebuild this really divided nation. You, it may be a healing book, but you make us walk through over hot coals to get <laughs> Fair. to healing. <laughs> Fair. You Fair rub our noses in what it looks like for division and hatred and polarization to be acted out to its extreme, which is war, and in this case, World War II. And, you know, the rubble of France you take us through and the struggles of an assassin for the French resistance um, who has killed 19 people. I'm not giving anything away. You say that in the opening pages. Uh, and now the war is over. His job as an assassin is over, and we see what he's done. He's reckoning with what he's done. What was your point? What is the, you know, did you intentionally kind of want to take us to that place of the ruins of civilization so that we would see where this goes? You know, when I wrote the first draft, it wasn't as dark. Um, things were kind of okay, and then they turned out all right. And, and the more research I did, the more I didn't feel like that was doing justice to history and that I thought, and the strength of what the novel could be. The real question I had was whether or not it was a fairy tale. Could people after the war, after any war, after any great time of division and damage, could, could they actually work together? And even as guys who want to kill each other, nonetheless are working on building a stained glass window together, which happens in this book, right? That, that um, uh, is, was that a fantasy or not? So I was researching, and I'm maybe getting ahead of you, but the windows that I used as inspiration for this are the ones by Marc Chagall that he built after World War II. And he was a Jewish man who was concealing his faith so that, in part, um, so that the French Catholics would teach him how to make stained glass. Um, so when I went to Reims in, in uh, eastern France to see Chagall's windows, I went into this cathedral that was his, and I really didn't know if this book was going to be a, uh, a fairy tale, uh, like uh, like Aesop's fable, and it is sometimes in kind of fable language a little bit, or was it, was, could it be more than that? And as I was walking into the cathedral, you know, the wind, his windows are all the way at the back, and this thing is like two football fields long. They started building it in the year 818. The ceiling is 160 feet up. Like, it is great, classic, gigantic old cathedral and all of its windows were destroyed during the war. It was also the first place that, as I'm walking down, I find this this kind of poster placard, I don't know what you'd call it, but it was maybe 20 feet long on the wall there, put on the rock. And what it was, um, was talking about the first time that French military and political officials met with German military and political officials after the end of the war. They, they did it there. That's where they met, okay? And different people told me different things about that story, but I'll just tell you the version that I, that I think says it most clearly. When they came together to have their first meeting for what they were calling rapprochement, um, there was a prayer, and then they were called to order by the French delegation, and then the head of the German delegation raised his hand and said, the people of Germany would like to speak first. And the head of the French delegation was like, mais non, monsieur, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not going to happen. And, um, and the guy came around in front of the tables of the German people, and he knelt down in front of the French delegation and said, the people of Germany beg for the opportunity to speak first. And the French said, we have made our first concession. We will not forget. And the German guy said, this is one of the great cathedrals of the world. And where there used to be one of the great stained, stained glass window collections of the world, they're all boarded up. It's all boards. And we're using lights down here because no natural light is coming in. 
And so we, we call upon the people of France to find the greatest stained glass window builders on earth to replace all these places that are boards with the finest windows that can possibly be made and every penny of it will be paid for by the people of Germany. True story, history. And I'm standing there reading this on the wall going, it's a novel, it's a novel, it's not a fairy tale, it's a real thing. And by the time I walked to the back to see Chagall's windows that are part of that rapprochement, I thought, it's not just a novel, it pertains to now. Did you have some inkling of that story before you went to the cathedral? No. You walked in and tripped over it. I went in to see the windows. I didn't even know that was there. Lucky me. Serendipity. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I think it's a stronger novel knowing that it's based in history than simply what I wish. That we could all work together, everyone. Turns out if the Germans and the French can work together to get Chagall's windows in that cathedral that's 1,400 years old or whatever, 1,200 years old, you know, um, and they're the most beautiful windows. I mean, you just can't believe how fantastic they are and how they break all the rules to make that, that beauty. And, um, and that Germany paid for it. It's powerful. Talk about your research, because part of your research was into glassmaking and stained glassmaking. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I completely nerded out on it. Um, and uh, I had, I mean, there are great books of um, Chagall's windows. They're like the coffee table books, you know, they're like two feet by a foot and a half that are really, really expensive. But it turns out those coffee table books are not really expensive, but used. And they just have never been opened. So that was, I knew those a lot. I had, you know, the windows of that cathedral I had over the window in my writing room uh, for probably six months before I actually got to see them in person. Um, and and uh, um, Larry Rebecca, who's a fantastic stained glass window maker in Vermont, was really patient with me, um, kind of coming in and asking a million questions in his studios while he was making stuff, and he never let me touch anything. <laughs> but he would answer my questions frankly, and he told me his, his goal was to make sure I didn't screw it up. And sometimes he didn't put it that nicely. It was great. And he was very helpful. And then the people that were really kind of miraculous were at AO Glass in Burlington. And, you know, they make like they make glasses and vases and pitchers and stuff like that. But they also make art. And when I was there, they were um, making globes, like 10,000 globes for the next sculpture by Maya Lin, who did the Vietnam Memorial, the wall. They were her new work has glass in it, and they were making the glass. Same, they do fantastic stuff, and and I have to say, like I think writers, you and me, David, right, is that writers are pretty sane for people in the arts, you know, and that I think like painters are a little less sane, and like musicians maybe a little less sane, and there's like this, you know, actors a little less sane than that, right, and they're all sort of in a spectrum, and way over here on the edge are glass makers and glass blowers, okay? <laughs> they're just in their own, they're, they're, they're pretty out there. So there I am, kind of this preppy guy asking, so what are you doing now, and writing down things, and finally they were like, put the notebook down, and so they had me blowing some glass, and I was really, really terrible at it. And they, the word they kept using was pathetic. I was pathetic. <laughs> and, like, I'd be trying to blow some glass, and people would be walking by, and they'd just be going, this guy's pathetic. <laughs> I mean, it was, they were, they were, um, and uh, part of it is that glass, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen in the course of my day? Like, I run out of printer ink. You know, my laptop battery runs out. But, you know, if you have a piece of glass and it starts to fall off your, your blowpipe, can you catch it? No, it's 1,600 degrees. You'll never close your hand again if you catch it. And if it shatters on the floor, do you sweep it up? No, it'll set your broom on fire. I mean, it's a whole, there's a whole different edge in the art. And that was really cool. And um, it's, they, it's like, here's a scoop of lava, and I'm going to make it into crystal in like a minute while it cools. And that just was incredibly compelling to me. So, um, so I ended up, I, I, was not, I was worthless at blowing glass, and I was just one step above worthless at, um, at sculpting glass, and I got into making flowers. And um, one of the guys there, Rob Beckham, was very helpful in help with helping me with making flowers, both the first one and the other ones after that. And there was a time in the novel where I needed a glass flower and I had just made my first one with Rob the day before. And it's like, oh, glass flower will solve this plot problem. And then it becomes a little symbol of love through the book, so much so that at the end, instead of it saying the end, there's a little drawing of a glass flower. And it's the first glass flower that I made. So um, 
So people should definitely go check out Ale Glass and the windows of Larry Becky. But also, um, we think, you know, next time you pick up a glass to drink out of, just think about that that was sand. You know, it's, pr it's a pretty remarkable art form. And I <laughs> love the research. What are the hardest things for you to write about? Well, that's a really good question. Nobody ever asked me stuff like that. Um, uh, it is hardest for me to write about longing. And almost always I have a character in my books and sometimes multiple characters that have longing. And um, in this book, a lot of the characters have longing because they lost a lot during the war. One woman says at one point that this guy says that he loves her and, and she says, don't say that because no one I know has today what they loved yesterday, right? And there's love, there's longing all through that. And, and what happens when I write it, because I'm a person who does this, who has this emotion, is I get, I get, I get very, um, I get in the, the emotion of the characters a lot. And um, so it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things where I know when I'm writing and I'm going to have to go back and take half of it out. Um, and, um, and there are certain other things, uh, you know, uh, this book has some sex in it and um, it's not happy sex, I would say, but, but writing any kind of sexual thing in a way that reflects who the characters are and is not prurient, but like has, is, you know, or gratuitous um, is hard. Just think about like, here, write a kiss and make it original. Write the first kiss of that kind. You know, it's because we've just seen a few and read a few that to be original with something like that is a challenge and not make it cartoonish. Um, and, and then really the biggest challenge that I have um, is that maybe because of all the years in journalism, maybe just because of the size of my brain, um, but I never know the whole story at all. And I do a lot of writing into the dark. And I, have, I can follow my headlights so I can see some of the way, but I'm writing into the dark a lot. And it's not until I finish the first draft that I actually know what the book is about. There were two other characters in this book, and I got to the end of the first draft, and it's like, they're gone. But I added Simon. I needed him. Alcoholic guy who quotes scripture. You know, it's like, like there were different reasons. And so I didn't know that till I got to the end. And um, I didn't know Bondurant's role. Things like that. And, and so... For me, the most joyous part is writing the second draft because it's like, oh, I know what this book is about now and this guy's going to behave like this and his name isn't this, it's that and all of these changes. Um, but getting to that, it's almost like a fever to get through the first draft so I can find out what is the story that is in there and how can I bring it forth. I'm so glad you're describing this process because I often do the same thing and I'll be stuck and my wife will very helpfully say, have you written an outline? And I sort of fall silent because I don't write outlines. I write, I figure out what I'm writing about by writing. Writing is my way of organizing my thoughts, of figuring out, of problem solving, which for better or worse it is, but you're describing, you're validating that approach. Yeah, I think it, it's the only way I can do it. I mean, the only one of my books where I knew what was going to happen in the book was The Baker's Secret, and it's only 78,000 words long. It's my shortest book by a lot, okay? It's half the length of The Universe of Two. Universe of Two, I had a whole chapter that was 19 pages long that was about this guy leaving the University of Chicago and being on trains to get to Los Alamos. And his kind of... Um, oh, I don't know, his awareness of a different America because he's been in the, in the University of Chicago Mathematics and Metallurgy Department, and now there are guys that want to beat him up because he's 20 years old and not wearing a uniform. And he's just like getting this introduction to America, and he gets to Los Alamos, and then he's brought into the place, and he's given his room in the barracks, and that was 19 pages long. And when I finished the first draft, I saw that the actual night of the test, of the Trinity test in June, you know, to make sure the atomic bomb worked, that chapter was only 14 pages long. So I said, well, wait a minute. If, if the first detonation of atomic bomb in human history is 14 pages long, how long should the train chapter be? And the answer is, I cut the whole thing. And I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have known until I got to the end and said, what's the proportion here? Like, I wish I was smart enough to, to do that, to know that in advance. I couldn't outline that. I wouldn't have known. I have to write the story and then go, oh, oh, now I see. So uh, what, you know, now... Oppenheimer is out. It's a blockbuster. Yeah. But you were on to the, you were intrigued by the Manhattan Project well before Hollywood got onto it. Yes. What 
got your attention? What made you think that would be a good subject for a novel? I heard about, I read a piece in the Georgia Review that was about how there's no more pacifism in America anymore. And there used to be, uh, there used to be, you know, there were people who voted against uh, a war with Japan after Pearl Harbor. There was somebody who voted against that just as a matter of principle in Congress. Um, Even though it was a woman, even though she knew it was going to be whatever number of votes to one, um, that uh, she felt like someone ought to be on record as a pacifist. So I was reading this thing about, about pacifists and there was a guy and she was talking about this guy, Charles Fisk and Charles Fisk, um, <clears throat> was a mathematician from Harvard who d- designed, was on the team that designed the detonator of the bomb that was used at Nagasaki and, uh, which is, um, the plutonium bomb. And, um, and after the war, he was given a full ride to Stanford to get a PhD in physics. And he got there wanting to study acoustics. And everyone was like, no, 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 we're studying the bomb here. We're going to build builder bombs, big, build bigger bombs, and the, the, the hydrogen bomb, all of this sort of thing. We're going to put bombs on rockets. And he lasted six weeks, and he dropped out, and he took a part-time job with a company um, in the San Francisco Bay Area that repairs church organs. And when he died in 1984, he was arguably the greatest cathedral organ builder in human history. And his company still exists now in Gloucester, Massachusetts. And if you want um, a Fisk organ, it'll cost you probably starter miles about five million bucks. Smallest one he built is in the uh, in the the uh, oh what am I forgetting the name of the room um, at UVM, the recital hall at UVM. And um, there are magnificent instruments around the world. And I thought, what a redemption story! Oh my God, here's this guy like healing his conscience from having participated in the killing of 70,000 people in Nagasaki. This is a great story. And so I learned about him. I even thought about writing a biography of him. And then I wanted, I wanted to get more of the people that had that moral question. And so I made it a novel of all these very young men. The average age at uh, Los Alamos was 27. They called Oppenheimer old man. He was 39, right? It was mostly like, uh, you know, guys who ran chemistry departments and then their, their PhD students who built this thing. So these young men are dealing with these enormously consequential ethical things and they have to live with it for the rest of their lives. And I thought, yeah, I want to write that story. So that's how it happened. What did you think of the Oppenheimer movie? Hollywood. You know, uh, that there, there's one thing they got right that I was very excited about. When the bomb went off, if we've seen videos or film ever before, the instant that the bomb goes off, we hear that sound. But everyone was six miles away, so it was more than a half a minute. It was almost 40 seconds before the sound reached them. So they're seeing the greatest cataclysm ever uh, on Earth, um, but it's in total silence. And um, they got that right in the film. Um, and a lot of other things were, you know, Hollywood style. It's Hollywood is always about the Superman, the hero, the guy who ran the place. And it's as if they're just drones, these people who, you know, wrote by the thousand petitions to the Secretary of War and to the president and to all, anyone who would listen saying, do not use this on people. Demonstrate it on an island so that Japan knows we have it. They will surrender or at least do that first. Also, that movie didn't uh, um, take into account that they actually built four atomic bombs, not two. And they were all in the USS Indianapolis the morning after uh, the first test, the Trinity test, and we were prepared to drop two more of them. I had the experience in college um, of getting to know George Kistiakowski, who was on the Manhattan Project. Sure was. He was a professor of chemistry at Harvard, and he was a very committed anti-nuclear activist. And so I, I found the whole moral dilemma thing so fascinating. And of course, you know, here we are, I was 40 years later and I went to speak with him at office hours and said, how did you end up in this position? You know, now you've, you've dedicated your life to speaking out against nuclear weapons. How did you, you were a smart guy. That's why you were on the Manhattan Project. What did you think you were doing? And he explained to me um, that this was the most compelling scientific challenge of its day. So for these young technicians, he said, we were very uh, separated from one another. We were very siloed, we would say today. And so I was working on my piece and there was enormous pride. There was the intellectual challenge. It was a very intellectually exciting environment. 
So if each of us separately and individually could figure out our piece, it wasn't my job to think about who put it together. And he said, that, of course, you know, was the evil in the whole thing, was that none of us took responsibility for what we were, you know, for the putting it together. Now, of course, they knew what they were doing. But, you know, and as you're saying, they, these were all guys, and they were most, I think, all guys, mostly guys. Mostly, yeah. In their 20s. And how you could just get in there and try and solve that math problem or that chemistry problem. And wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, Kistikowski is one of the rare ones because he'll talk about it a lot. And I, for the purposes of my novel, I thought his name was too complicated, so I called him Bronsky. <laughs> it was just a little simpler. But there are other people from there. There's one guy who... Uh, created, um, uh, I'm forgetting the name of his organization now, but it became an enabling structure for all of the negotiations for the START treaties, and he won a Nobel Peace Prize in like 1974 for his work to reduce the the stockpiles of nuclear weapons around the world. And a lot of these men went forward. One guy um, took something he had learned during the working with radioactivity and created cobalt radiation, which is he used to treat himself first because he had a, uh, I want to say a kidney cancer or no, a um, bladder cancer and it worked and is now still the technique and the chemical, uh, I'm sorry, the, the molecule that is used in radiation for cancer today. And so lots of good things came from these guys. And for many of them, it was like a way of repairing themselves. And so I just thought from a novelistic standpoint, a guy who, uh, Mugwash, I think is the name Pugwash. of the organization. That's it. And that's the convening uh, treaty organization. Yes. For, and so that was like, that would be pretty cool. But I thought the guy making cathedral organs was a little more dramatic oh, yeah. from a novel standpoint. I'm you with know. you. Plus the research was cool. I got to hear these great organs all over the place, including at Harvard, by the way. So post-traumatic stress disorder is kind of weaves in and out a lot of your stories you're clearly you know fat i mean it's in the glass chateau they don't call it that no then but no. reading it today you see all the hallmarks of ptsd that so many people coming out of war are dealing with um is that something you've been fascinated with you know i'm not a student of it and i'm very careful about that because um Include that book, the guy coming back from um, from Iraq. three deployments in Iraq. Yeah. Yes, I mean I've in, I've encountered characters and had characters who have damage in them, and I really want to be very careful not to walk on psychological ground and psychiatric ground that I don't know really well. So I don't really go like I'm not going into diagnoses categories or any of that stuff. I'm just writing characters and trying to make them as genuine, as authentic, and as kind of as, as believable as possible. And so each of them has a story. You know, literally every character in the Glass Chateau is damaged. Every single one is damaged in one way or another. And I did not give any of them physical injuries, any physical stuff. It's all internal. That was very much by design and by choice. And some of them we find out what's wrong with them, and some of them we don't. And there's one guy who never talks. There's one guy who never tells anyone his name. And they all, have, like, you find out why the guy doesn't say his name, and it says a lot without having to have a diagnosis category. It just, it ho hopefully, he holds together as a character. You mentioned that you go through drafts. You write your way through these things, and then you go back and rewrite. When do you know you've got the story right? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a great... Uh, uh, let me, uh, I'll be honest about that. Uh, you know, I mean, part of it is, you know, it's done when my editor says this is done, right? And I, I get paid for it, <laughs> which is ne a necessity. But the reality is, you know, uh, if I break out like my reading copies that I take with me on tour, um, I have a pen in my pocket all the time and I'll read it, be reading something like 10 nights in a row and I'll say that sentence is a little sloppy and so I'll repair it before the next night. And so by like the 20th night of tour, I'll be reading from the published book, but there's ink all over the pages because I just found ways to make it a little bit better. So it's never done. It's absolutely not. It can always be improved. It's, you know, the great thing about a novel, it's operatic. It's huge in scale and how much you can put in there. Um, but it also means there's, there's always a moment you could make sharper. There's always a phrase. There's always a metaphor. There's always a simile. There's always a way you can improve it. Who are some writers who you admire and who you learn from? Well, I guess it depends on like what threshold you look out look at. You know, um, I went to Middlebury College. It's what brought me to Vermont, and the English major there 
you come out of there and you know the canon like almost no other undergraduate program. It's really thorough. You know, most people have read like four Shakespearean plays. I'd read them all. You know, they've read, they've read one of the Canterbury Tales. I'd read it all, right? It was just the quality of that was really great. I didn't know it when I was having it, how good it was. But so, so, but I do now. And so I think about like the different, the, the, the influence of, you know, Tolstoy and Dickens and these great minds um, were huge. Um, and then I think about people more like of this generation who would just, whose work is so genius that, that, um, you know, if you look at the work of Milan Kundera, if you look at the work of uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, you know, these are brilliant, brilliant, brilliant minds. And you can just take, you take the first chapter of 100 Years of Solitude and try to break it down. Why does this work? This thing that is in a, no, a language, an organization that no one else has ever used. How does this work? And you get to the end of the chapter, and you're like, damned if I can figure it out. But, but you, you can try, you know, you can learn from that. And then I think about like more recent um, stuff. And I think like I was really, I learned a lot from the shipping news. I learned a lot from Snow Falling on Cedars. I learned a lot from Corelli's Mandolin. I learned a lot from Midwives. I learned a lot from the horror in The Passage, which I'm not a horror reader, but it was so compelling and so well-written. Um, now I have writer friends, some from my schooling time and some that are people I've gotten to know along the way that are enormously helpful. My acknowledgments at the back of my books tend to always run pages and pages from the people that, that are helpful. In this particular book, uh, Dawn Tripp, who's a brilliant novelist, um, probably uh, Georgia is probably her most well-known book um, about the life of Georgia O'Keeffe. She's got a book coming next summer. It's going to be gigantic. And, um, and Jenna Bloom, who is a historical fiction writer, Those Who Save Us, spent two years on the bestseller list, and and um, it's a World War II story, also very helpful. Um, and uh, so there are people like that that are educational to me. And sometimes I do just run across something. Uh, right now I'm reading Euphoria by Lily King. And she does some stuff in there where I can't figure out how she does it. And so I will get to, when I'm done reading the book, I'm very close to the end. I'll go back to those chapters and be like, what was she actually doing here? And see if I can figure it out. Not because I can steal it, although if I can steal it, I will. I'm shameless. But more because I want to see, like, it's, it's a very expansive art. Um, you know, what uh, Colson Whitehead, Whitehead did with uh, Nickel, Nickel Boys just absolutely blew me away. And uh, I just, that was the last book I just wept at the end. I just wept. I just cried for this. These characters who never existed, right? He just made them up. It's just black marks on a white background, in a, you know, between covers. And I'm just weeping my eyes out at the end. It's like, damn, that's good. How did he do that? You know? When you read your earlier writing, and uh, what do you see? How have you evolved as a writer? What do you notice has changed? <laughs> um. I'll tell you, let, let me answer it this way. If, if you think about, uh, as a journalist, you know, the governor announces there's a new secretary of transportation and you're in the news conference and you ask some questions and he tells you about this great secretary of transportation and, and you know, you've heard of this guy, he's so-so, he's you know, but that's okay. And the press asks some questions, kind of skeptical. And then you go back to the office and you call some environmental groups and they say, that guy wants to pave the state. And you get some opposition to him, right? And you talk to a couple of legislators and you get their point of view. And then you get there, everyone's removed from what happened in that room. And then you give it to the city editor and they say, it's too long and I want less of the environmentalists. And so that's somebody who's now three steps away. And then, you know, it's going to be a little controversial. Maybe we're going to put it on the front page that's a controversial appointment. So the managing editor reads it. That's now five steps away from reality and then it's on the doorstep of people in the morning or it's in their in their you know in their computer when they pick it up it's like there's and they're like oh well it's kiernan and he's got this bias and it's the free press they have that bias and so you're like 11 levels of remove between what actually happened in that room and what people what is in the reader's mind and what here's what happens with fiction I wrote my first book, The Curiosity, and I had the privilege of speaking at the American Library Association without realizing at their annual meeting that it was 25,000 librarians. And so I was speaking to what, the, like, this, this, my first novel isn't even out yet, but libraries have gotten advanced copies, and I'm waiting to speak to 800 people, and I am nervous. And I'm, like, sipping water, but worried I'm going to need to pee and all that. And this big guy comes up to me, this big galoot, and he says, are you Stephen Kiernan? And I said, yeah, well, I read your book, and you know what? 
I love you. And he throws his arms around me, just about picks me up in the air. And I'm like, well, I love you too, man. What's your name? He's Josh. And Josh says he wishes his dad were still alive because this book just tells the story of his life and why it was good for him to quit law school and go get a library degree. I said, but this is about cell scientists and biology. He said, yeah, but she quits the lab and becomes a high school biology teacher. And like, that's my path. And you just told my story, man. And I realized like all those removes, gone. It is in the imagination of the reader. And then I ran across this quote of Galway Cannell. Sorry to carry on on this, but it's actually a thing I think about a lot. Galway Cannell said the book is only half the transaction and the other half is in the reader's imagination. So what I actually do now is give less and trust the reader to imagine the rest of the scene. So it's, it's very difficult when you're describing a stained glass window because you want that concrete thing. You want the reader to see it. But I never say, Marie is beautiful in this book, but I never describe her physically, really. I, d I always give her different colored clothes. That's all. I don't describe her face or her hair or much of anything. And, and I want the reader to decide what their idea of beauty is and project that into Marie. And so as I look at my older books, I'm doing a lot more telling the reader. She's a knockout. Let me describe her to you. you know, and now I'm doing, she's beautiful. Have fun with your imagination. And I think that that gets the reader to bring more heart I believe that the reader brings more heart into a book if there's less of that distancing. You trust your reader and you trust your ability to evoke an image, not to hit him over the head with it. Yeah, well said. Um, so I can't help but think that scene today at an American Library Association conference with a big guy coming up to you and you being nervous, you probably have good reason to be nervous because that guy might be asking for your book to be banned in some godforsaken library or school somewhere in America. Yeah. What do you, what are you, you're seeing what's going on in the world. You're seeing what's happening to fellow authors. Yes. Friends of mine, Jody Pico, Tanya Lee Stone. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's awful. So if you were at one of these contentious school board meetings in Florida, Mississippi, or all the many places where books are getting banned you're a writer, what would you stand up to say? And then perhaps it would be your book that's banned because, oh, there's racy things in there. There's, you know, people whose gender identity doesn't conform with whatever person's comfort zone is and the, who's reading it. Or, um, what would you say to them about why it's important to read things that make you uncomfortable and your kid, for your kids to read things that make them uncomfortable? Well, I actually think that that, that meeting in that room is important and what I might say in that room is, is not irrelevant, but it's the wrong place for the conversation. Um, if you look at the polls, vast, vast, vast majority, no matter how you, they phrase the question, the vast, vast majority of Americans don't, don't want book banning, don't want this to happen at all. <clears throat> it's a few people dictating for everyone, and it makes everyone very uncomfortable, especially because its targets are pretty much anyone who isn't heteronormative um, and anyone who isn't white. And, and, you know, that they took a book out of school. It's about Hank Aaron and his going from a little kid to breaking Babe Ruth's record for the most home runs. And Ruby um, Bridges was right. banned. The story yes, of I mean, Ruby so Bridges. many things, so many things, so many things. And um, that the, and the, just the patent racism of it. And so what I think is when the American people, by like 90% margins, think something is wrong, then what you need to do with the situation is democratize it. And I would say make every library commission every library board an elected position not appointed by select boards as it is in my town for example so if somebody comes in and says we want that book banned you can say no if they say well i'm going to run against you say go for it knock yourself out now you know we do have the citizens united law and somebody could spend a million dollars to run for a library board and they'd have the backing of moms for liberty maybe right and let that let that bonfire happen but but i, I think about my town I live in Charlotte, which in the years that I've lived there has become a very affluent place and I think more conservative and certainly ready to argue about anything. And so if somebody showed up and said, I want a book banned, there would be people in that community who would say they wanted it banned too. And right now, the people who are, who are on the library board <clears throat> excuse me, are saints and they've given a ton of time and a ton of effort to run this really, really fantastic library, fantastic in a million good ways and um and there's no backing politically they're all picked by the select board but if they're elected they can say nope we're not going to ban it thanks for your time and if you want to run against me next time meeting day great let's have a debate 
And I think that that's where the, I mean, we should absolutely go to the meeting and say it is wrong to close people's minds and to prevent them from encountering uncomfortable ideas. It's part of what books are for. It's not all, but it's part of it, especially because those barriers are gone and it's right in the reader's imagination. You can build empathy that way. You can build creativity and imagination that way. But in terms of the political solution, I think it's in the ballot box. Finally, you began by saying part of your mission in the Glass Chateau was to show people something about healing, how you get past divisions. What, how should they see that? You know, what do you hope the big takeaway is, or your ulterior motive, I guess, um, in how you present that message? Well, within this story, there's, um, there's a transcendent moment, and I don't want to give it away, <laughs> you know, in the last couple of pages, right? Which is um, not only are they healed, but that they become healers. And um, if I, if maybe I can use that euphemistically so they don't give it away, what, what actually happens. Um, and, and I think that that's part of what I believe is that we can't, we don't just need to get ourselves healed in the time that we're in. We need to become healers in whatever the need is here. And, you know, there are some people who say like this most recent flood was, you know, it was a very dark moment for Vermont and, and it definitely did enormous damage. And I'm really, really worried about housing in particular and how people are going to find places to live at the same time. I think it's like our finest hour in terms of volunteers showing up and taking care of their neighbors and stuff like, and being healers. And I think like we should not in all the damage and serious concerns that came out of that. And God bless the two people who died. Can we also remember that thousands of people rallied for people they didn't even know just because they were a Vermonter and they were in hard times. And so that, that is kind of the lesson of this book and it's also what I believe. And I think about my town that I was just kind of disparaging a little bit about how pe divided people are. And I remember when they were, Habitat for Humanity was building a cluster of houses there and people of all different political stripes and all different income levels and all different skill sets worked on building those houses for those families, two of whom are good friends of mine now. And I think that, that um, Again, like you can unite a town and you can unite a people by making them healers. Well, Stephen Kiernan, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. A huge pleasure. Thanks. Stephen Kiernan's latest book is The Glass Chateau. That does it for this Vermont Conversation. Thanks so much to Bridgeside Books in Waterbury for hosting this live discussion. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.